Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Twenty Four. Richard Hare at Mr. Dill's window. Part Two. Good night, Barbara," said Mr. Carlyle. "Will you not come in and say good night to Mamma?" "Not now. It is late." Tell her how glad I am things have gone off so well. He started off at a strapping pace towards his home, and Barbara leant on the gate to indulge her tears. Not a soul passed to interrupt her, and the justice did not come. What could have become of him? What could the Bucks had be thinking of to retain respectable elderly justices from their beds, who ought to go home early and set a good example to the parish? Barbara knew, the next day, that Justice Hare, with a few more gentlemen, had been seduced from the stadled inn to a friend's house to an entertainment of supper, pipes and whist, two tables, penny points, and it was between twelve and one ere the party rose from the fascination. So far, well, as it happened. Barbara knew not how long she lingered at the gate. Ten minutes it may have been. Nobody summoned her. Mrs. Hare was indulging her grief indoors, giving no thought to Barbara, and the justice did not make his appearance. Exceedingly surprised was Barbara to hear fast footsteps, and to find that they were Mr. Carlyle's. "'The more haste, the less speed, Barbara,' he called out as he came up. "'I got halfway home and have had to come back again. When I went into your sitting-room I left a small parcel, containing a parchment, on the sideboard. Will you get it for me?' Barbara ran indoors and brought forth the parcel, and Mr. Carlyle, with a brief word of thanks, sped away with it. She leant on the gate as before, the ready tears flowing again. Her heart was aching for Richard. It was aching for the disappointment the night had brought forth respecting Captain Thorn. Still nobody passed. Still the steps of her father were not heard, and Barbara stayed on. But what was that figure, cowering in the shade of the hedge at a distance, and, seemingly, watching her? Barbara strained her eyes, while her heart beat as if it would burst its bounds. Surely, surely it was her brother. What had he ventured back for? Richard Hare it was. When fully assured that Barbara was standing there, he knew the justice was still absent, and ventured to advance. He appeared to be in a strange state of emotion, his breath laboured, his whole frame trembling. "'Barbara! Barbara!' they called. "'I've seen Thorn!' Barbara thought him demented. "'I know you saw him,' she slowly said. "'But it was not the right Thorn.' "'Not he,' breathed Richard and not the gentleman I saw to-night in Carlyle's office. I've seen the fellow himself. Why do you stare at me so, Barbara? Barbara was, in truth, scanning his face keenly. It appeared to her a strange tale that he was telling. When I left here, I cut across into Bean Lane, which is more private for me than this road, proceeded Richard. Just as I got to that clump of trees, you know it, Barbara, I saw somebody coming toward me from a distance. I stepped back behind the trunks of the trees, into the shade of the hedge, for I don't care to be met, though I am disguised. He came along the middle of the lane, going toward West Lynn, and I looked out upon him. I knew him long before he was abreast of me. It was Thorn! Barbara made no comment. She was digesting the news. Every drop of blood within me began to tingle, and an impulse came upon me to spring upon him and accuse him of the murder of Hallijohn, went on Richard, in the same excited manner. But I resisted it, or perhaps my courage failed— one of the reproaches against me it used to be that I was a physical coward, you know, Barbara, he added, in a tone of bitterness. 
In a struggle, Thorn would have had the best of it. He is taller and more powerful than I, and might have battered me to death. A man who can commit one murder won't hesitate at a second. Richard, do you think you could have been deceived? she urged. You had been talking of Thorn, and your thoughts were, naturally, bearing upon him. Imagination! Be still, Barbara, he interrupted in a tone of pain. Imagination, indeed! Did I not tell you who was stamped here? Touching his breast. Do you take me for a child, or an imbecile, that I should fancy I see Thorn in every shadow, or meet people where I do not? He had his hat off, as if he had been walking fast and got hot. Fast he was walking, and he carried the hat in one hand, and what looked like a small parcel. With the other hand he was pushing the hair from his brow, in this way, a peculiar way, added Richard, slightly lifting his own hat and pushing back his hair. By that action alone I should have known him, for he was always doing it in the old days. And there was his white hand, adorned with his diamond ring. Barbara, the diamond glittered in the moonlight. Richard's voice and manner were singularly earnest, and a conviction of the truth of his assertion flashed over his sister. I saw his face as plainly as I ever saw it, every feature. He is scarcely altered, save for a haggardness in his cheeks now. Barbara, you need not doubt me. I swear it was Thorn. She grew excited as he was. Now that she believed the news, it was telling upon her. Reason left its place, and impulse succeeded. Barbara did not wait to weigh her actions. Richard, Mr. Carlyle ought to know this. He has but just gone. We may overtake him if we try. Forgetting the strange appearances it would have, her flying along the public road at that hour of the night, should she meet any who knew her, forgetting what the consequence might be, did Justice Hare return and find her absent, Barbara set off with her fleet foot, Richard more stealthily following her, his eyes cast in all directions. Fortunately, Barbara wore a bonnet and mantle, which she had put on to pace the garden with Mr. Carlyle. Fortunately, also, the road was remarkably empty of passengers. She succeeded in reaching Mr. Carlyle before he turned into East Lynne Gates. "'Barbara!' he exclaimed in extreme of astonishment. "'Barbara!' "'Archibald! Archibald!' she panted, gasping for breath. "'I'm not out of my mind. But do come and speak to Richard. He's just seen the real Thorn.' Mr. Carlyle, amazed and wondering, turned back. They got over the field stile, nearly opposite the gates, drew behind the hedge, and there Richard told his tale. Mr. Carlyle did not appear to doubt it, as Barbara had done. Perhaps he could not, in the face of Richard's agitated and intense earnestness. "'I'm sure there's no one named Thorn in the neighbourhood, save the gentleman you saw in my office to-night, Richard,' observed Mr. Carlyle, after some deliberation. "'It is very strange.' "'He may be staying here under a faint name,' replied Richard. "'There can be no mistake that it was Thorn whom I have just met.' "'How was he dressed? As a gentleman?' "'Catch him dressing as anything else,' returned Richard. "'He was in an evening suit of black, with a sort of thin overcoat thrown on, but it was flung back at the shoulders, and I distinctly saw his clothes. A grey alpaca, it looked like. As I have told Barbara, I should have known him by this action of the hand,' imitating it, as he pushed his hair off his forehead. It was the delicate white hand of the days gone by, Mr. Carlyle. It was the flashing of the diamond ring. Mr. Carlyle was silent. Barbara also, but the thoughts of both were busy. Richard, observed the former, I should advise you to remain a day or two in the neighborhood and look out for this man. You may see him again and may track him home. It is very desirable to find out who he really is, if practicable. But the danger, urged Richard. Your fears magnify that. I am quite certain that nobody would know you in broad daylight, disguised as you are now. 
So many years have flown since that people have forgotten to think about you, Richard. But Richard could not be persuaded. He was full of fears. He described the man as accurately as he could to Mr. Carlyle and Barbara, and told them they must look out. With some trouble, Mr. Carlyle cut from him an address in London, to which he might write, in case anything turned up, and Richard's presence should be necessary. He then once more said farewell, and quitted them, his way lying past East Lynn. "'And now to see you back, Barbara,' said Mr. Carlyle. "'Indeed, you shall not do it. Late as it is, and tired as you must be. I came here alone. Richard did not come near me.' "'I cannot help your having come here alone, but you may rely upon it I do not suffer you to go back so. Nonsense, Barbara. Allow you to go along the high road by yourself at eleven o'clock at night. What are you thinking of?' He gave Barbara his arm, and they pursued their way. "'How late Lady Isabel will thank you,' observed Barbara. "'I don't know that Lady Isabel has returned home yet. My being late once in a while is of no consequence.' Not another word was spoken save by Barbara. "'Whatever excuse can I make should papa come home?' Both were buried in their own reflections. "'Thank you very greatly,' she said, as they reached her gate, and Mr. Carlyle finally turned away. Barbara stole in, and found the coast clear. Her papa had not arrived. Lady Isabel was in her dressing-room when Mr. Carlyle entered. She was seated at a table, writing. A few questions as to her evening's visit, which she answered in the briefest way possible, and then he asked her if she was not going to bed. "'By and by. I am not sleepy.' "'I must go at once, Isabel, for I am dead tired.' "'No wonder.' "'You can go,' was her answer." He bent down to kiss her, but she dexterously turned her face away. He supposed that she felt hurt that he had not gone with her to the party, and placed his hand on her shoulder with a pleasant smile. "'You foolish child, to be aggrieved at that! It was no fault of mine, Isabel. I could not help myself. I will talk to you in the morning. I am too tired to-night. I suppose you will not be long.' Her head was bent over her writing again, and she made no reply. Mr. Carlyle went into his bedroom and shut the door. Some time after, Lady Isabel went softly upstairs to Joyce's room. Joyce, fast in her first sleep, was suddenly aroused from it. There stood her mistress, a wax light in her hand. Joyce rubbed her eyes and collected her senses, and finally sat up in bed. "'My lady, are you ill?' "'Ill, yes, ill and wretched,' answered Lady Isabel. And ill she did look, for she was perfectly white. "'Joyce, I want a promise from you.' If anything should happen to me, stay at East Lynne with my children. Joyce stared in amazement, too much astonished to make any reply. Joyce, you promised it once before. Promise it again. Whatever betide you, you will stay with my children when I'm gone. I will stay with them. But, oh, my lady, what can be the matter with you? Are you taken suddenly ill? Goodbye, Joyce, murmured Lady Isabel, gliding from the chamber as quietly as she had entered it and Joyce, after an hour of perplexity, dropped to sleep again. Joyce was not the only one whose rest was disturbed that eventful night. Mr. Carlyle himself awoke, and to his surprise found that his wife had not come to bed. He wondered what the time was, and struck his repeater. A quarter past three! Rising, he made his way to the door of his wife's dressing-room. It was in darkness, and, so far as he could judge by the absence of sound, unoccupied. Isabel! No reply, nothing but the echo of his own voice in the silence of the night. He struck a match and lighted a taper, partially dressed himself, and went about to look for her. 
He feared she might have been taken ill, or else that she had fallen asleep in some one of the rooms, but nowhere could he find her, and, feeling perplexed, he proceeded to his sister's chamber door and knocked. Miss Carlyle was a slight sleeper, and rose up in bed at once. "'Who's that?' cried out she. "'It is only I, Cornelia,' said Mr. Carlyle. "'You?' cried Miss Corney. "'What in the name of fortune do you want? You can come in.' Mr. Carlyle opened the door, and met the keen eyes of his sister bent on him from the bed. Her head was surmounted by a remarkable nightcap, at least a foot high. "'Is anybody ill?' she demanded. "'I think Isabel must be. I cannot find her.' "'Not find her?' echoed Miss Corney. "'Why, what's the time? Is she not in bed?' "'It's three o'clock. She's not been to bed. I cannot find her in the sitting-rooms. Neither is she in the children's room.' "'Then I'll tell you what it is, Archibald. She's gone worrying after Joyce. Perhaps the girl may be in pain to-night.' Mr. Carlyle was in full retreat toward Joyce's room at this suggestion when his sister called to him. "'If anything is amiss with Joyce, you come and tell me, Archibald, for I shall get up and see after her. The girl was my servant before she was your wife's.' He reached Joyce's room and softly unlatched the door fully expecting to find a light there, and his wife sitting by the bedside. There was no light there, however, save that which came from the taper he held, and he saw no signs of his wife. Where was she? Was it probable that Joyce should tell him? He stepped inside the room and called to her. Joyce started up in a fright, which changed to astonishment when she recognized her master. He inquired whether Lady Isabel had been there, and for a few moments Joyce did not answer. She had been dreaming of Lady Isabel, and could not at first detach the dream from the visit which had probably given rise to it. "'What did you say, sir? Is my lady worse?' "'I asked if she had been here. I cannot find her.' "'Why, yes,' said Joyce, now fully aroused. "'She came here and woke me. That was just before twelve, for I heard the clock strike. She did not stay here a minute, sir.' "'Woke you?' repeated Mr. Carlyle. "'What did she want? What did she come here for?' Thoughts are quick, imagination is still quicker, and Joyce was giving the reins to both. Her mistress's gloomy and ambiguous words were crowding on her brain. Three o'clock, and she had not been in bed, and was not to be found in the house. A nameless horror struggled to Joyce's face. Her eyes were dilating with it. She seized and threw on a large flannel gown which lay on a chair by the bed, and forgetful of her master who stood there, out she sprang to the floor. All minor considerations faded to insignificance beside the terrible dread which had taken possession of her. Clasping the flannel gown tied around her with one hand, she laid the other on the arm of Mr. Carlyle. "'Oh, master! Oh, master! She has destroyed herself! I see it all now!' "'Joyce!' sternly interrupted Mr. Carlyle. "'She has destroyed herself! As true as that we two are living here!' persisted Joyce, her own face livid with emotion. I can understand her words now. I could not before. She came here, and her face was like a corpse as the light fell upon it, saying she had come to get a promise from me to stay with her children when she was gone. I asked whether she was ill, and she answered, Yes, ill and wretched. Oh, sir, may heaven support you under this dreadful trial. Mr. Carlyle felt bewildered, perplexed. Not a syllable did he believe. He was not angry with Joyce, for he thought she had lost her reason. "'It is so, sir, incredible as you may deem my words,' pursued Joyce, wringing her hands. "'My lady has been miserably unhappy, and that has driven her to it.' "'Joyce, are you in your senses or out of them?' 
demanded Mr. Carlyle, a certain sternness in his tone. "'Your lady miserably unhappy! What do you mean?' Before Joyce could answer, an addition was received to the company in the person of Miss Carlyle, who appeared in black stockings and a shawl and a lofty nightcap. Hearing voices in Joyce's room, which was above her own, and full of curiosity, she ascended, not choosing to be shut out from the conference. "'Whatever's up?' cried she. "'Is Lady Isabel found?' "'She's not found, and she'll never will be found but in her winding-sheet,' returned Joyce, whose lamentable and unusual state of excitement completely overpowered her customary quiet respect and plain good sense. "'And, ma'am, I'm glad that you have come up, for what I was about to say to my master I would prefer to say in your presence. When my lady is brought into this house and laid before us dead, what will your feelings be? My master has done his duty by her in love, but you, you have made her life a misery.' "'Yes, ma'am, you have!' "'Hoity-toity!' muttered Miss Carlyle, staring at Joyce in consternation. "'What is all this? Where's my lady?' "'She's gone, and taken the life that was not hers to take,' sobbed Joyce. "'And I say she's been driven to it. She has not been allowed to indulge a will of her own, poor thing, since she came to East Lynne. In her own house she's been less free than either of her servants.' You've curbed her, ma'am, and snapped at her, and you made her feel that she was but a slave to your caprices and temper. All these years she had been crossed and put upon, everything in short but beaten. Ma'am, you know she has, and has borne it all in silence like a patient angel, never, as I believe, complaining to master. He can say whether she has or not. We all loved her, we all felt for her, and my master's heart would have bled had he suspected what she had to put up with, day after day and year after year miss carlyle's tongue was glued to her mouth her brother confounded at the rapid words could scarcely gather in their sense what is it that you are saying joyce he asked in a low tone i do not understand i have longed to say it to you many a hundred times sir but it's right that you should hear it now things have come to this dreadful ending since the very night Lady Isabel came home here, your wife, she had been taunted with the cost she has brought to the East Lynne and to you. If she wanted but the simplest thing, she was forbidden to have it, and told that she was bringing her husband to poverty. For this very dinner-party that she went to to-night, she wished for a new dress, and your cruel words, ma'am, forbade her having it. She ordered a new frock for Miss Isabel, and you countermanded it. You have told her that Master worked like a dog to support her extravagances, when you know that she never was extravagant that none were less inclined to go beyond proper limits than she. I've seen her, ma'am, come away from your approaches, with the tears in her eyes, and her hands meekly clasped upon her bosom, as though life was heavy to bear. A gentle-spirited, high-born lady, as I know she was, could not fail to be driven to desperation, and I know that she has been. Mr. Carlyle turned to his sister. "'Can this be true?' he inquired, in a tone of deep agitation. She did not answer. Whether it was the shade cast by the nightcap, or the reflection of the wax taper, her face looked of a green cast, and, for the first time, probably, in Miss Carlyle's life, her words failed her. "'May God forgive you, Cornelia,' he muttered, as he went out of the chamber. He descended to his own. That his wife had laid violent hands upon herself, his reason utterly repudiated. She was one of the least likely to commit so great a sin. He believed that, in her unhappiness, she might have wandered out in the grounds, and was lingering there. By this time the house was aroused, and the servants were astir. Joyce, surely a supernatural strength was given her, for though she had been able to put her foot to the ground, she had not yet walked upon it. 
crept downstairs and went into Lady Isabel's dressing-room. Mr. Carlyle was hastily assuming the articles of attire he had not yet put on to go out and search the grounds when Joyce limped in, holding out a note. Joyce did not stand on ceremony that night. "'I found this in the dressing-glass drawer, sir. It's my lady's writing.' He took it in his hand and looked at the address. Archibald Carlyle. Though a calm man, one who had his emotions under his own control, he was no stoic, and his fingers shook as he broke the seal. "'When years go on, and my children ask where their mother is, and why she left them, tell them that you, their father, goaded her to it. If they inquire what she is, tell them also, if you so will. But tell them, at the same time, that you outraged and betrayed her, driving her to the very depths of desperation ere she quitted them in her despair. The handwriting, his wives, swam before the eyes of Mr. Carlyle. All save the disgraceful fact that she had flown, and a horrible suspicion began to dawn upon him with whom, was totally incomprehensible. How had he outraged her? In what manner had he goaded her to it? The discomforts alluded to by Joyce, and the work of his sister had evidently no part in this. Yet what had he done? He read the letter again, more slowly. No, he could not comprehend it. He had not the clue. At that moment the voices of the servants in the corridor outside penetrated his ears. Of course they were peering about and making their own comments, Wilson with a long tongue the busiest. They were saying that Captain Levison was not in his room, that his bed had not been slept in. Joyce sat on the edge of a chair. She could not stand watching her master with a blanched face. Never had she seen him betray agitation so powerful. Not the faintest suspicion of the dreadful truth yet dawned upon her. He walked to the door, the open note in his hand, then turned, wavered, and stood still, as if he did not know what he was doing. Probably he did not. Then he took out his pocket-book, put the note inside it, and returned it to his pocket, his hands trembling equally with his livid lips. "'You need not mention this.' he said to Joyce, indicating the note. "'It concerns myself alone.' "'Sir, does it say she's dead?' "'She is not dead,' he answered. "'Worse than that,' he added in his heart. "'Why, who's this?' uttered Joyce. It was little Isabel, stealing in with a frightened face in her white nightgown. The commotion had aroused her. "'What's the matter?' she asked. "'Where's Mamma?' "'Child, you'll catch your death of cold,' said Joyce. "'Go back to bed.' "'But I want mamma. "'In the morning, dear,' evasively returned Joyce. "'Sir, please, must not Isabel go back to bed?' Mr. Carlyle made no reply to the question. Most likely he never heard its import, but he touched Isabel's shoulder to draw Joyce's attention to the child. "'Joyce, Miss Lucy, in future.' He left the room, and Joyce remained silent from amazement. She heard him go out at the hall door and bang it after him. Isabel, nay, we must say Lucy also, went and stood outside the chamber door. The servants, gathered in a group near, did not observe her. Presently she came running back and disturbed Joyce from her reverie. "'Joyce, is it true?' "'Is what true, my dear?' "'They are saying that Captain Levison has taken away my mamma. Joyce fell back in her chair with a scream. It changed to a long, low moan of anguish. "'What has he taken her for? To kill her? I thought it was only kidnappers who took people. Child, child, go to bed. 
Oh, Joyce, I want Mamma. When will she come back? Joyce hid her face in her hands to conceal its emotion from the motherless child, and just then Miss Carlyle entered on tiptoe and humbly sat down in a low chair, her green face, green that night, and its grief, its remorse, and its horror, looking nearly as dark as her stockings. She broke into a subdued wail. God be merciful to this dishonoured house! Mr. Justice Hare turned into the gate between twelve and one, turned in with a jaunty air, for the Justice was in spirits, he having won nine sixpences, and his friend's tap of ale having been unusually good. When he reached his bedroom, he told Mrs. Hare of a chastened fall which had gone tearing past at a furious pace as he was closing the gate, coming from the direction of East Lynn. He wondered where it could be going at midnight hour, and whom it contained. End of chapter 24